Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Dan Miller to the show. Dan Miller is the founder and CEO of Steward, an online platform for investing in sustainable farms. Unlike traditional funding methods, Steward's crowd farming model creates a healthy yield for both farmers and investors. Farms are able to purchase land and equipment, and investors earn projected returns while making a positive impact. From 2010 to 2015, Miller was co-founder, president, and director of Fundrise, the first and largest U.S. real estate crowdfunding platform, which has raised more than $1 billion to date. He remains involved with Western Development Corporation, his family's real estate organization, which has developed more than 20 million square feet in its 50-year history. Dan, how are you doing today? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Dan, you're welcome. Dan, where in the world are you? Currently in Brooklyn, New York. And how are things for you right now during this pandemic? We're doing okay. I'm here with my wife and one-year-old son, so we're all managing. Well, I'm glad to hear that. So Dan, I like to open my show by asking my guests the following question. If you were asked to share something interesting about yourself, what would it be? It's a good question. Um, one thing that I always think about is I've, I've lived on four continents. I always enjoy as many cultural experiences as possible and meeting as many new people as possible. Um, that's also led to my new venture, which we'll discuss coming up. So I always try to keep an open mind and always try to, to understand as many different cultures and people and point of view as possible. So which four continents? Currently, I grew up in the U.S. Um, I lived abroad in Hong Kong and also in Rio and Brazil. And then I recently moved back from London to New York just in February, just in time for all this. So I was living in Europe for the past three years prior. And if you had ultimate resources, where would you pick to live? It's always somewhere new. I don't know. I've, I've always had a soft spot for the Caribbean. And I remember <laughs> a lot of child experiences out there and just, you know, virgin strawberry daiquiris swimming on the beach. So maybe uh, have a banana farm and a seafood shack on the beach. <laughs> Sounds beautiful. Well, you know, you mentioned a little bit about your current endeavor. Can you tell the audience a little bit about it? Sure. Uh, so the company is Steward, uh, gosteward.com. It's an investment platform for regenerative agriculture. So we allow people to invest in sustainable farms, provide capital right to the farmers on the ground doing important work. Uh, and then we provide support to those farmers through a host of services and tools to help them be successful. So for those that might not be familiar, can you go into a little bit of detail about regenerative agriculture? Yes. So, you know, it's a, a newer term that people are using similar to sustainable agriculture. Um, the, the current agriculture that's dominant in Western society and, and now the world is generally classified as conventional agriculture. Uh, that came to pass over, you know, post-World War II eras when it became dominant. It involves uh, pesticides and sprays and almost is, is farming as manufacturing, kind of fixed inputs, uh, large harvests of commodity products. Uh, high volume sales, you know, around the world. And that's the type of farming that, that uh, economically is under pressure, but also has had a lot of ecological consequences on uh, ecology and ecosystems uh, and soil and nutrients and health and wellness and 
pretty much all a lot of the cultural issues we're facing. Uh, the root is that the, the way we've decided to take care of the land has had huge impacts on the land and, and ourselves as a society. And sustainable and regenerative agriculture is focused on reusing what's put into the earth. So growing with sun, um, building soil health, focusing on efficient use of resources with water, such as drip irrigation, if you're watering, um, and really focusing on taking care of the land first and alongside of that, growing great products uh, and materials, but having those aligned, you know, and the, the, how we take care of the land is aligned with the quality of the products that we're growing and we're eating. And even though that seems simple, that, you know, sustainable agriculture would be the norm, it's, it's not. Uh, and most of the resources are directed towards large kind of industrial agriculture. So, you know, you mentioned the economy earlier, and I'm really glad to have you on right now. I think it's very timely. Most recently, we read about the animal farms being shut down. Last week, I read about milk producers and so dairy producers essentially having to, you know, pour their harvest, if you will, away. Can you like give us an idea? You got your finger on the pulse. What are you seeing and feeling right now and how might we come out of this a little differently? So we're seeing a real split in the market. The types of farmers that steward support that are smaller scale, a few hundred acres or less, uh, selling direct to consumers. They don't have long supply chains. They're not relying on distributors and large processing plants. They're seeing a boom in demand. They're seeing two to three times increase in retail sales, customers reaching out to them to buy direct from the farmer. So people are, are more thoughtful now around where they can source their food and are putting more energy into buying that right from the source. The alternative system, which is the traditional uh, conventional system, is reliant on long uh, supply chains, large processing facilities that are generally run on immigrant labor. Uh, there's been health epidemics and issues with COVID in these facilities that have unsafe working conditions, even in the best of times. Um, and then you have these producers that are producing huge volumes of product that they're planning to ship around the country that they don't have a direct local market for it. So if they can't get their product to the processing facility or if they can't distribute it to the national chains buying it or the uh, large global purchasers, the product is either dumped out or wasted. And so we've built a system that's not resilient, that's not dependent on local supply, that's not dependent on direct sales. And so when something collapses in the intermediate system, either drop in demand or issues at the processing facilities, they don't have alternatives. They don't have other markets. And you're just seeing food either be wasted uh, or animals in some circum circumstances uh, killed because of the lack of demand. While people are needing food and food banks have seen over 70% increase in outreach. And so it just shows that we've built a system that relies on a few very large producers and very long supply chain. Uh, over 99% of products in the U.S. are not grown and sold locally. So let less than 1% is actually grown and sold within a 250-mile radius, effectively, you know, rounding error. And we need to bring back our farm system to something that's more sustainable, that involves smaller-scale distribution and direct sale to customers. And uh, it's, it's making people really rethink how, how we grow our food and how we provide for people. So I really appreciate you sharing that. So one of the arguments I hear sometimes from people when I talk to them about, you know, perhaps farmer's market or local shopping is the price. Do you have any ideas, perhaps how we can start overcoming that barrier, you know, versus the commercial pricing? Because I think it's very hard for some of the local farmers to compete on the price point that, you know, commercial farmers get subsidies, et cetera. 
Yes. So there's two elements to that. First is for the sustainable farmer that's smaller scale selling direct to customers. If you're buying right from the farmer, you can normally get a reasonable price. It still is probably more expensive than what you're seeing in international grocery stores. Um, but it's the best cost that you can get for that product. You know, that's what it takes to really grow the product. And you're buying something with nutritional value. You're buying something that's higher quality. So it's not, you know, apples to apples. They say it's not the exact comparative product. Um, most of the agricultural market is driven by government policy and government policy incentivizes large scale commodity production. So there's subsidies related to the uh, sale of these products or subsidies related to the funding for these products. Uh, a lot of these farms aren't paying some of the, the externalities related to runoff and uh, nutrients and, and depletion of the watershed. So the true cost of food is not included in the price of, of what's traditionally provided. Uh, and the subsidies allow those producers to run to lower costs. Um, but what I, I think people realize is, is higher quality is what's important. And so maybe having a, a lower volume of higher quality product is better for you in the end. And knowing that your dollar is actually going right to the farmer. When you're buying through a supermarket, maybe five or 10 cents of that's going to the producer. If you're buying direct, 100 cents. So it's about people really valuing where they're spending their money. Um, a lot of the government programs that do allow people to, to buy food subsidized, whether through food stamps or uh, WIC is another program, they're often built to make it hard for individual producers to fit in. So everywhere you go, there's a roadblock for sustainable farmers. There's challenges for consumers trying to buy these products. Um, but at the end of the day, that's the type of system that we need where there's value going to the people making it and the people buying it are getting a quality product. And you know we've seen the costs of the health epidemic and so many other ecological costs that if they were actually included in the cost of production, you know, it would not be competitive. So we're really living on a system that's propped up uh, by subsidies that, that, but for those would not uh, support itself. And so if all those were removed, there would be even a, a greater movement towards sustainable farms. But as you can imagine, there's a lot of politics there. There's a lot of vested interests, um, but it is only about a hundred years in history of our species that we've been farming this way. It's a relatively recent invention, you know, kind of built off the back of petroleum and gasoline and refrigeration that uh, has has adjusted our food system and made it of, of a global nature instead of a local nature. I really appreciate that. So two questions I have. One is, you know, you mentioned nutritional value, and obviously I'm not asking for any kind of exact answers, but I've heard quite often that, you know, some of the tomatoes that are grown locally from regenerative farming are so much healthier than commercial farming. Do you have any examples of, you know, what that difference might look like from nutritional value? Yes. Yeah, so, the, you know, health and wellness has so many different variables to it. Um, but the the products that are often grown in greenhouses are grown with uh, fertilizer and pesticide, which is basically just chemicals or petroleum sprayed on the crops. It, it doesn't retain nutritional value. And um, there's a lot of research on it. It's not sustaining you as a person. So you're you're eating the mass, you're eating the product, but the nutrients in it are very limited because the soil that it grows from is depleted. Uh, it's been destroyed by chemicals and fertilizers, and it's limited in its scope. So I think one of the things that we always overestimate as a species is our knowledge and awareness. And the reality is we don't really know that much of what goes on in the soil and how nutrition is built into the food. We just know that higher quality food has a huge impact on humans. And so we often like to pretend like we have all the answers and we know what little adjustment to make to balance it. But there's a lot of magic that goes on when something is grown. 
Uh, and if you just measure the, the nutrient capacity of the soil, that's going to be your best indicator for, for uh, the quality of the food. And the follow-up question I had, you know, you mentioned waste earlier, and I've been doing some research over the last few months, and I'm learning more about this, and I'm going to call it misfit fruits and vegetables. Do any of the farmers that you work with participate in these kind of programs where the misfit fruit and vegetables that perhaps aren't, you know, quote-unquote fit for store selling can actually end up on farmers' markets? So our farmers, you know, the number one thing is we push them to sell direct. So they're not selling through grocery stores. The volume that a grocery store needs to carry to fit into its supply chain is pretty much large enough that it's not a farmer of doing really sustainable growing is not going to fit into those practices. So generally, that's an issue more for industrial ag of huge volumes of production, where there's a need to have it look exactly perfect in the aisle. When you're buying direct from the farmer, the customer understands that this is grown at the, the, the local farm and that it's not going to fit all the characteristics you need at the supermarket. So that to me is one of the byproducts of the system we've built where there's an expectation of every product available looking perfect and convenience, um, but there's a lot of cost to that. So definitely we work with farmers that provide food for free locally, that allow local residents to buy from them discounted prices. I mean, they're in it not for the money, they're in it for the love and for passion and to take care of the land and support the local communities. So they definitely are providing those products, particularly now with COVID. I mean, they're selling goods that people need to, to, to live and, and they understand that not everyone can pay full price now. Um, so I think the second you, you, you change it from a national and global scale system to what can be grown and produced locally, and let's do the most of that possible, never going to be 100%, but let's get better than less than 1%. You then have a lot of these issues around waste and transport costs and loss. They they tend to disappear because they're they're issues of a of a long supply chain. I agree. So you mentioned passion and love, and you know the crux of our conversation is the why behind what you do. You know, there's an opportunity cost for you to be running Go Steward. You have you know a background of fundraising and other activities. So why? What drives you, and what drove you to start Go Steward? My interest comes from two sides. Um, from a personal background, my mother's family has been farming in the Chesapeake Bay since the late 1800s. They came as immigrants from Germany. Uh, the land they bought in 1881 still in the family. Uh, my mother grew up on a farm, one of six siblings, all of them but one left. So I grew up in Washington, D.C. Um, but we spent a lot of time out there. And you saw in one generation you know, the Chesapeake Bay, which is the largest estuary in the United States, and was really the breadbasket that region for many years, um, degraded in one generation, losing 99% of its capacity with dredging of the oyster beds and runoff from local chicken farms and soy and corn. So you saw the destruction of, of the economy from a regional you know, small farm economy to a few industrial producers and everyone else going out of business. And so you, you, you see what you know, the value is not going to the places producing the products. They have the fields planted with corn and soy and they have big brother chicken houses, but the value is not going to those producers and it results in a depressed economy and a lack of opportunity when they should have great fresh food and they should have lots of opportunities for people to produce that. So that was the interest of how do we create a system that can support these family farms that are growing sustainably. And generally people view that as a challenge, but in my work at Steward, um, I've met these farmers and you realize that not only do they love what they do, but they have products that people want. So the recent genesis for Steward came uh, connected to my last business, 
I was doing real estate development in Washington, D.C. That was my father's side of uh, family. So, you know, mix of agriculture and real estate. And we were developing properties in some of the emerging parts of the city, leasing those to a lot of younger chefs. And through those chefs, I started to meet the farmers that they were buying from. Uh, and these were farmers with great stories, really interesting products that were selling everything they could, all their product to these far- restaurants or farmers markets, but they couldn't access funding. And it just seemed like a huge gap. We have exploding demand for their products and people understanding the importance of them in society, but they're unable to get funding. And that led me on the idea of steward of taking the individuals who want to support these farmers who may be buying from them, but take the next step to actually invest in these farms, get them the much needed capital to grow, to buy land, to make investments in the farm and really achieve what they want, which is have a sustainable operation where they can take home a reasonable amount of pay and live the life they want and take care of the land. So for Stuart, it's about my passion to support these farmers, but it's also enabling the farmers themselves to continue with their passion. And they're all in it for passion. It's it's not a career you would do otherwise. It's a calling for them. And they're going to be doing this, and we may as well get them the, the most resources they can have. I really appreciate you sharing that. Do you have any stories of the farmers that you can share with us? I mean, it's just one of perseverance. One of the first farms we funded was an urban farm in Detroit. Uh, the farmer and his partner, who's now his wife, um, he, they were farming on a side lot. You know, the uncle owned a dry cleaner in Detroit. They were farming on a side lot next door on a 16th of an acre of land, uh, trying to buy land from the Detroit Land Bank to grow the farm. Uh, the land bank is 100,000 vacant acres, but yet was having trouble just allowing this farmer to buy a few of them. And so we stepped in to help uh, the farmer buy that land. Their revenue went from $10,000 to over 100000 just in the past two years as they've grown their business, as they built a local farm stand, they really support the local community uh, and have become one of the premier farmers in that region. And this is someone who didn't come from a farming background, uh, learned about farming at uh, college when they had an urban farming program that he trialed a little bit. He was working uh, side jobs like almost all these farms are to bring in income while they started their farm. He was actually washing dishes at some of the restaurants he sold to, which just shows the, the kind of perseverance and grit of these farmers. So the, the farmers that we support at Steward are generally already farming. They're, they're a few years in. They've gone through those first few years of trials and tribulations of knowing they want to run a farm and committing to that life. And now they have products, they have markets established, and they need to grow their business and they get stuck. And they can't access funding because most funding is driven, as I mentioned before, by government policy. So if you're not a large commodity producer, you're pretty much ignored, whether by design or intention, that's just how it is. And the resources aren't there, funding isn't there. So they can't buy land, they can't get funding for irrigation or hoop houses or labor. And Stewart steps in and provides that boost of funding that really helped them accelerate and get to stability. So instead of working two off-farm jobs, they can work full-time on the farm, they can maybe get health insurance, they can maybe start taking a salary and getting them to the point where they can not only sustain themselves as a sustainable farm, but they can they can have the positive impacts they hope to have on their community. So each of our farms has a story like that of, you know, a person who who is obsessed, who's passionate about their work, who cares immensely about how they grow their products and who they're selling to. And one after another just runs into barriers and, and our job is to help remove some of those barriers. That really is beautiful. How do you qualify individuals or farms that want to be part of Go Steward? So farmers apply through our website. Um, 
a lot come through referrals and some come through direct marketing. Uh, surprisingly, you know, these farmers are all around the country and they're very active uh, digitally normally with texting customers and uh, messaging, whether Facebook or Instagram, you know, those are some of their main channels for, for customers. So they, they come to us through the website, they apply, uh, we review their application, we set up a phone call. On that phone call, one of our, our team members who's a farmer himself, who's experienced in farming, speaks with them, helps them think about their business, understand where they are, what are their bottlenecks, what do they need help with, you know, funding and other services. Uh, then we review internally, we do a site visit, we make sure to visit all the farmers in person, one to help vet them, but also because there's nothing like walking a farm with a farmer to really think about what's needed for them to take the next step. Uh, then we provide the funding. Individuals can invest on our website. They can invest in an individual farm or they can invest in a pool of farms called the Steward Farm Trust. Um, and that provides funding to these farms. And that's the first step. So we began initially as a traditional kind of investment lending platform where the farms would come. We would lend the capital. Some came from my own personal funds. New money also comes to the website every day as people invest at GoSteward.com. Uh, but we've really broadened the business now where we're providing a suite of tools and services to these farmers. So we're helping them with e-commerce to do direct-to-consumer uh, sales. We're helping with back-end bookkeeping and accounting, which really none of the farmers care much about or really have done it focused on before. Um, we provide our fundraising tool to them as well if they want to raise money from their friends and family and their networks. Uh, we help some them with grants. So whatever you know whatever we can do to support these farms once they've come in and we've vetted them and feel like they're committed farmers focused on sustainability really doing it the right way we just wrap our arms around them and, and try to figure out any way we can help so does ghost steward also provide a network for the farmers to learn from each other and best practices etc that's been a big part of it as we've grown you know helping farmers connect uh, with our team of experts. Uh, so we have a full-time farmer on our team who reviews and stays in contact with the farmers, but we also then connect them with local resources. We connect them with other farmers. One of the challenges of being a regenerative farmer and focused on sustainable farming practices is that it's not the norm. And so most of the farmers around you won't be farming that way. The university extensions aren't focused on that type of work. Most of the resources out there are, are not focused on sustainable agriculture, even though it's the more traditional method of farming. And so finding like-minded people you can connect with uh, is really important. I was just earlier today speaking with a rancher in Eastern Oregon, which you know, east of the Cascades is, is cattle country. And he's doing uh, grass-fed beef, which is surprisingly not the norm, even though you know cows were made to eat grass. Now we normally feed them feed and corn and all types of other stuff. Um, but he's doing grass-fed beef and he's struggling to find people locally to help him, uh, you know, and understand what he's doing. And the, the challenges with the type of farming that we're talking about is because you're using the sun and the soil, you have to adapt to the climate, you have to adapt to the region, you have to adapt your practices. And so each farm is unique to their piece of property and how they're going to farm. And that type of local knowledge that existed for generations has been lost as we've just mechanized and standardized farming. So as you return back to growing regional products and focusing on things that are unique to that climate and that farmer skill set and that piece of land, uh, a whole host of things happen. Uh, but those are the exciting things about figuring that out, about really pioneering and trying new methods and speaking with other farmers 
and building that network. So that, that's really where I see Stuart going, more of a network business. It has an investment component, it has a suite of software tools, it connects farmers with a marketplace of talent, and it also brings other farmers together. Really anything we can do to accelerate the movement towards regenerative agriculture we want to do. So you mentioned technology earlier, and I have this fascination right now with vertical farming. Do you have any thoughts on that? So I'm, you know, I, I, I don't shut off vertical farming entirely, but I, I find it to be a focus when there are a lot of other simpler solutions. Capital cost is really the number one thing to look at for farming, to be cautious, you know, limit expenditure, limit overhead, limit the amount of capital you need because it's, it's a variable business. There's many factors going into it. And the vertical farms that have come our way, you know, will need $2 million to build a system that to grow fresh greens and lettuce. When that farmer I just mentioned in Detroit to farm two acres of land needed 75K. And so you look at what does it take to service a $2 million investment with overall costs. That's a lot of product to sell. That's a high volume. It really puts you in strain. Whereas most places, there's available land at a reasonable price. So I, I do think vertical farming in some locations makes sense, maybe Manhattan and Tokyo. Um, we, but at the end of the day, it costs a lot of money to put together. There, there are easier ways to do it, though, with you know some rooftop farming if the building is built for it. Uh, we've seen some growers doing mushrooms in urban areas in old uh, underground parking lots. So it's, it's just about finding an efficient way to do it. But I, I generally find that a $10,000 hoop house on a two or three acre land goes a lot farther than a really sophisticated automated um, vertical system. So my, 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 the, the bone I have to pick with it is that it, it gets most of people's attention. It gets most of the investment in, in this world. But the farmer who needs 25K in Northwest Arkansas can't get it. But a, a vertical farming startup in San Francisco can raise $200 million. And so you start to see the bifurcation that the capital and the focus is not actually on what, what is on the ground today and can have a big impact with a little bit of investment. It, instead, it's looking for the kind of scalable automated system, which is really what, what brought us down to the path we're in today. Thank you for your insight regarding that. So what would you say have been some of your biggest or most important learnings along the way? So I, you know, I, my mother's family has been in farming a long time, but I didn't grow up on a farm. So um, prior to Stewart, I co-founded a company called Fundrise that was the first real estate crowdfunding platform. Uh, that initially began tied to those real estate projects I mentioned that we wanted to have local investors invest with us in those buildings. So through Fundrise, I learned you know, the regulatory, legal, securities, technology elements. I grew up in real estate and investment, so I knew that. Uh, but with Stuart, it's really been learning about farming, about agriculture. Uh, there's one book in particular called The Unsettling of America by Wendell Berry that really helped give me the philosophy and the framework. I would recommend it for anybody. Uh, he's a seventh-generation farmer in Kentucky who had lived in New York and taught at NYU and had been out in the world and realized he needed to go back home and farm himself. But he's kind of an agrarian philosopher. And he really lays out, you know, what system have we built for agriculture? What are the trade-offs we've made? Uh, how is the system, you know, not able to support itself in the long term? And a lot of that wisdom is what's happened now, which is we haven't built a resilient system. We've, we've degraded our capacity to provide healthy food to people and remove people off the farm. From the 1890s, half the population in the U.S. was connected to agriculture. Now it's 2%. And so we've made a lot of choices for convenience, for, for, 
for dollars, for you know policy, for whatever the reasons were, uh, that are coming back home and 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 creating challenges in in the current climate. So for me, it's been learning about these farms, meeting the farmers, understanding their business. And and that's the part I love of just spending time with these farmers and figuring out what are some solutions, what can we help with? And each farmer has their own challenges and they think it's unique to them, but we've realized that most of them have similar challenges. You know, most of them need a little bit of help figuring out how to do direct consumer digital marketing or set up an e-commerce platform or finding access to capital. And as we build these solutions for one farm, we then can spread it across the network. So one of my big learnings with Stuart has been not to force, you know, not not to uh, feel the burden of speed of just taking the time to really understand your customer, to really dive deeply with them to figure out what you're in a good position to help with, and and to really focus on how can you make them successful. And if you can make them successful, then you can be successful as a company yourself. I really appreciate you sharing that, and for the book recommendation, Unsettling of America by Wendell Berry. And staying on that, if you could share some advice or words of wisdom with the audience, what would it be? So I, I connected to that work of, you know, my whole career has been about finding things that I really am passionate about that maybe on the front of it didn't, wasn't clear how that's a business opportunity, but it's just a matter of following your, 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 your heart, you know, and I've always felt that if you're motivated to do something, if it's something that you really care about, you'll put whatever extra time into it because you enjoy it, you know, because the trade-off is that you you would happy to put the time into something that you love doing. So I'm one of those people that I can only be motivated about things that I really care about. And so I look to find things that I'm passionate about that I want to put my heart and soul and energy into. And through that, have a positive impact. And I've been fortunate to be able to do that with Stuart. And I love the work that I do every day. Uh, and I love seeing the positive impact that has on these farms, these operations, their communities people's awareness of buying healthy food and the importance of supporting these farmers. And I hope it's something I can do for a long time. I really appreciate that advice. It's been a wonderful conversation. Is there anything that we have not explored that you'd like to talk about before we go? No, it's been great. I mean, I, I think the, the one thing that I would tell to everyone listening is, you know, take it within your hands to contact farmers and buy products directly from them. Be an active participant in building a sustainable resilient local food system, you know, put every dollar you spend on food, try to get as much of that to the producer as possible. And, and, you know, be the change that you want to see in the world. And I think it's going to take a lot of individual actions. There's no single solution. There's no, you know, mega operation that can solve it. This is about millions of individual farms and tens of millions of individual consumers making daily decisions that help build a more resilient food system for us all. Thank you so much, Dan, and thank you so much for your time, and I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And if you like what you heard, please give us a rating and review at Apple Podcast. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production, and if you want to show your support and help us grow, please share with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle.